What's up, everyone? Uh, wherever you may be, however you may jo be joining us, thank you for making us a part of your day. Today, I'm with Dr. Randall Rouser. In case you do not know who Dr. Rouser is, he is a, a an, oh my gosh, here an associate professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary. He got his PhD in King's College London with a dissertation on Trinity, Mind, and World of Theological Epistemology, epistemology of Meditation, and Today we're going to be talking a little bit about his belief in annihilationism, uh, a lot of cool stuff. I'm looking forward to this interview. It's going to be a great conversation. We'll be doing some Q&A at the end, so if you have questions, feel free to drop them in the chat if you're listening to us live. Um, thank you for joining me, Dr. Browser. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, it's always a... I love talking with people about theology, philosophy, apologetics, Zach, so any opportunity like this is just a great way to spend an afternoon for me. It's great to hear, and I have to agree with the same way. I always love talking with people a lot smarter than me about these things, so I enjoy it. So to start off, could you tell me a little bit about, and people who are listening, who you are, how you got into theology and apologetics, and kind of where you got to where you are today? Yeah, so well, I, I did an undergraduate degree in uh, religious studies and English, double major back in the early 90s. And I was at Trinity Western University in Vancouver. Uh, and at that time, I actually wanted to be a missionary. But uh, I got a taste for theology, and I thought, you know, I would just continue on and do a master's degree. Now, I should say one of the courses that impacted me the most in my undergraduate was a, a course in apologetics by a well-known Canadian apologist named Paul Chamberlain. And we actually had Bill Craig, William Lane Craig, come to our classroom in 94, and then I got to watch him do a couple of debates around that time. And so that sort of piqued my interest. Hard to believe that's 26 years ago now. And uh, really, I've had an interest in apologetics ever since then. So I went on and did a master's degree at Regent College and then did a PhD in London at King's College. Uh, my focus in my master's was bioethics and, uh, and Christian studies. And in my uh, PhD was in uh, Trinitarian theology, as you had a reference there. And uh, that actually led to a, one of my books that I published was a, that grew out of my research at, at the doctoral level is on um, epistemology and theology. So a lot of interaction with Alvin Plantinga's ideas because I took a course with Plantinga in 1998 and that impacted me significantly as well. And I've been teaching at the seminary, Taylor Seminary in Edmonton where I currently live for the last 17 years. In that time I published I think 11 books and done many different debates and, and interactions and dialogues like the conversation that we're having now. So that's where I've come from. That's great stuff. So I'm curious, you talked about being in a class with uh, Alvin Planning. Uh, what's that like being in the same room as him? What was his teaching style like? What is he like as a person? Just kind of your experience, your takeaway from that class? Well, I think that uh, he's, he's personable and has a wonderful dry sense of humor which you'll certainly pick up on if you read any of his books. He's got a you know, kind of a nice pause and then he'll have a kind of a laugh or a chuckle on that. And then a few people in the classroom will get it and that. So it was, it was a great class. Now it, was, it wasn't a graduate seminar. It was about 35 people packed into the classroom. And at the time I still didn't have a real good read on Planning Guy. I think I'd read God and Other Minds at that point and that was about it, which is not an easy book. So uh, I was just trying to keep up at the time, but we actually, what was cool is that the class was on warranted Christian belief and the book 
um, uh, with that title was published in 2000. So this was a couple of years before that. We had a working manuscript that we worked from about 450 pages. And so it was kind of neat to see the book in its evolution at that time and see how those ideas would, would later come to fruition. Um, as he, when he published that book, it was really the completion of a three-part really magisterial treatment of epistemology. So it was neat and it was actually very ground, uh, not only groundbreaking what he did, but it was really formative for me because he really shaped my own apologetic approach. Hmm. That'd be really interesting. Uh, it'd be really cool to sit in the class with him. So today, obviously, title of what I pushed you with and the title of the stream, if you're joining us, is we're talking about annihilationism. So I think just to start off, could you give kind of just like uh, a de not a definition, but your explanation of what the doctrine of annihilationism is? Yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> actually, let, let me back up a little bit of biography here as well, autobiography. Uh, so um, I took a class in 94 and it actually was, I think it was the same apologetics class with, cause it was with Chamberlain as well, that, that professor. And so we had to do debates in that class. And so I decided to do the debate where I would uh, debate the nature of hell. And so the, the one guy in the debate, he was going to defend the traditional mainstream view of the church, which is eternal conscious torment. And according to that view there after the general resurrection, Yeah, yeah, you see me? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. We're all good. All right. Um, so those who are um, general resurrection, they're subjected to eternal punishment and they suffer forever. That's the mainstream view of the church. The view that I was going to defend in that debate was annihilationism, which says that after the general resurrection, God just there what is going on um if you guys are listening can you hear dr rouser at all uh not really sure what happened there um hello can you hear me i think that he froze Hello, you there, Dr. Rouser? Yeah, I think the issue's on. Hmm. Okay, well, we are just going to chill here for a minute and see if we can get Dr. Rouser back. Um, and he's loading. He's loading. He's loading. There he is. All right. Everything good? Did your computer, like, freeze up there? I don't think you can hear me. And here we are at a pause for a second. Um, thank you guys in the chat for helping me figure out what's going on. I think we got it all figured out here, and we'll get back to this in a second. Um, can you hear me, Dr. Bowser? Don't use the Wi-Fi. I'm frozen, and I'm in the middle of a... Okay. Oh, good. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Let's move closer to the router. Uh, can you see me? 
Yeah, I can see you and hear you. You're good. And now, gone again. Okay, let's see if that'll work. Hopefully. Yeah, I can hear. I can hear you and see you. Uh, am I good on my end? Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Now I'm like five feet away from the router at this point. So if it doesn't work, then we're kind of <laughs> might be out of luck at that point. So what what point did I cut off? Uh, you were just talking about how you were in a debate class and the other person took the eternal conscious torment position. Yeah. And so I, I had agreed to take this other position, which annihilationism. So general resurrection, they agree on that. But then what the annihilationist position says is that God destroyed after the general resurrection. And so one key difference traditionally between those two views is that on eternal conscious torment, human beings are made, they must continue to go on existing forever. But on uh, annihilationism, we're conditionally immortal so that God can will to destroy the wicked. And so that's in fact what he does after the general resurrection. So I agreed to debate that position but I did so as a devil's advocate view, meaning that I didn't actually accept it, but I agreed to role play the argument as if I did accept it. And now that's a great way to learn an argument. When you commit to defending a view that you don't yourself hold, it really helps you to understand it from the inside. And it did so for me. But ironically, the other thing it did for me was to change my views. So after annihilationism, I came to be persuaded by the strength of them. And so I've really been an annihilationist for the last 26 years or so as a result of that assignment. Okay. Huh. That's really interesting. So could you talk a little bit about the thing that kind of convinced you um, towards annihilationism away from like an eternal conscious torment perspective? Sure. So uh, first of all, I guess one of the books that I read at the time, now there's been more that's been written since then, but one book that was quite influential at the time was Edward Fudge's book, The Fire That Consumes. Uh, and there's actually was a movie made about it, a drama, uh, Hell and Mr. Fudge. So if you're interested, I'd recommend people checking out that movie as well, because you kind of get the story of how Edward Fudge came to hold an annihilationist position. And so that's a good book that that pays a reread. One thing that, that um, affected me was to look at how many texts really support the annihilationist view or can be interpreted in light of it. But beyond that, and so we'll talk about those, I'm sure. But beyond that, I'd also like to point out that when people develop theological views, it's not simply a matter of identifying a set of biblical texts that support your view, but it's of reflective equilibrium. In other words, what you try to do is you bring together multiple sources of reasoning. So, for example, you bring together moral reasoning and philosophical reflection and experience you take a look at the traditions of the church and you read all of that in light of scripture and then you formulate your opinion. And so for me, all of those uh, different factors were pivotal in me coming to hold that particular view. Hmm. That's really interesting. So start off with just some of these the biblical texts that you talked about. What are some of the biblical texts that you looked at? And you're like, this seems to suggest to me maybe that annihilationism could be true. Well, first of all, well, one thing that you see when, when you look at scripture is the, the frequent reference to the destruction of the wicked or of those who are in opposition to God's kingdom. Uh, there are many, for example, many Psalms that talk about the wicked being no more and so on. Uh, 
and then we have Jesus's own teaching. So he talks about the separation of the wheat and the chaff, and then the chaff or will be or the tares will be destroyed or burned up. You have Jesus in Matthew ten twenty eight talk about uh, don't fear simply those who can destroy the body, but those who can destroy the body and soul in hell. And so that gets into the, this idea of the image of fire itself. And what is the message that is conveyed by the image of fire? Well, sometimes, quite often, in fact, the image of fire is an image that conveys destruction, annihilation, the cessation of existence, that for something to be burned up is a metaphor or a way for conveying the message that it is completely destroyed. Now, beyond that, there are also all the passages that talk about uh, the contrast between life and death. So, for example, Romans 6, 23, you know, that talk about death outside of Christ, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. A second Timothy 1.10 talks about immortality coming to light through Jesus Christ. So that's another example where God alone is himself immortal, but through Christ, he grants immortality to those who are found to be within him. So when you bring all of that together, you have a really good witness that can be read in terms of support of annihilationism. And um, yeah, well, I'll just leave it there and then feel free to follow up. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. Uh, you talked a little bit, um, so you just talked about the biblical support. And now you also talked about some other factors that can be considered and that would lead you to support uh, an annihilationist perspective. So can you talk a little bit about those other factors outside of the Bible that kind of lead you towards annihilationism? Yes, sure. So um, first of all, one thing we have to do when it comes to eternal conscious torment is really understand what is the nature of the claim. So uh, I'd like to point out that um, a better term in some respects is eternal conscious torture. Okay. So the idea there is that to torture someone is to inflict severe mental or physical pain or suffering upon them as a punitive judgment or as a form of punishment. And that classically is precisely what hell is on the eternal conscious torment view. It's God inflicting great suffering on people physically and mentally, emotionally, spiritually as a form of punishment. So what eternal conscious torment, first of all, is proposing is that God resurrects people. He brings people back into existence so that he can subject them to eternal torture. Um, today, we have some pretty strong inclinations, I think, against the very idea of torture. So when I was visiting England back in the mid-1980s, we visited the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. It's a famous wax museum, and there's one area in it called the Chamber of Horrors, and it has all of these, these ways that people were tortured in the Middle Ages. Now, the thing is, when we look upon that now, so pictures of things like the Iron Maiden or the Rack or the Pair of Anguish, these are all these terrible ways that human beings inflicted torture on other human beings as a way of punishing them. We recoil in horror at it because today, I think we recognize rightly that it's wrong to torture people. Well, hell, by the historic definition of eternal conscious torment, precisely is that. It's God being an active agent of the torture of individuals. So I think when we really appreciate the implication of what is being proposed there, then that provides some pretty strong grounds to reconsider the position. Now, some other people say, well, maybe hell, and this was actually the tack that Lewis took, C.S. Lewis. 
but maybe hell is self-imposed torture, right? Maybe it's it's not God being the active agent of torture of individuals, but rather they are torturing themselves. Now, that may be a little better in some respects. You know, Lewis famous, famously said, the gates of hell are locked on the inside, right? That we choose in some way to be there perpetually. But I'd like to, to say, well, what that is then on that view is that hell is the ultimate expression of self-harming. So I knew a, a young lady in high school, and once we saw her, and she was cutting herself, right? She was uh, had a knife, and she was like slashing on her arms. And so right away, when, when people saw she was doing that, they grabbed the knife away from her hands, and they stopped her from inflicting that kind of pain upon herself. And yet in hell, on this second view, is the ultimate form of self-harm people who loathe themselves and they loathe God and they loathe their own existence and they continue to torture themselves forever. Now, that may be a little bit better than God being the active agent of torture, but I think it's still deeply problematic to think of hell in those terms. So, I mean, that's those are some of the considerations when it comes to eternal conscious torment. One other one that I'll just maybe note briefly is the difficulty of thinking about hell in its relationship to heaven on the eternal conscious torment view. Because on that eternal conscious torment view, um, so on that view, I exist, and you know, let's say, let's say that my daughter goes to heaven and and I go to hell, right? And so then my daughter loves me now and shows compassion for me and and desires my fl human flourishing, but suddenly when I'm resurrected to judgment in hell and I'm subjected to eternal torture forever, either my own self-inflicted torture or divinely inflicted. I'm supposed to believe, or we're supposed to believe, that my daughter, who's at that point fully conformed to the image of God in Christ, so she's exactly what it should be to be like Christ, that every tear will be wiped away from her eyes, that she will no longer suffer, even though her father is being eternally tortured in hell. There seem to be some pretty strong problems with that kind of picture. Um, so a couple ways that theologians have proposed thinking about that. One way is to say, well, maybe God will just make sure that we're unaware of the suffering of people in hell. But that doesn't seem to be a very plausible view to me. Uh, it seems to suggest that heaven can only exist if we are blinded to the horrors that lie outside the gates, as it were. And the other view is to say, well, maybe the, the suffering and torture of those in hell will actually increase the pleasure of those in heaven because it will be a manifestation of God's justice and glory. Uh, here, now that many people have held this view, so Thomas Aquinas held this view, Tertullian, even John Piper, G.I. Packer in our own day, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, but I think that that's, to my mind, a very repellent view. I just have to be straight up. It seems to me that to be fully conformed to the image of God in Christ is not consistent with a daughter finding joy in God manifesting his glory through the torture of her father for eternity. So that's a quick rundown of some of the problems. Yeah, that's some really interesting points that you bring up. Um, before we try to transition here a little bit into some more objections to your view, biblically and philosophically speaking, um, do you have anything else you want to add to why you believe in annihilationism before we go into some of this other stuff? Well, let me let me address actually maybe as a segue one common objection, uh, and that's the the objection that the annihilationist is giving themselves over to a modern sentimentalism. So in other words, in the good old days, you know, we really, we had a more robust constitution and we were intoxicated by God's glory and his sovereignty. And uh, we were okay with the fact that, that this was the model of hell is this eternal 
torture. But today we've kind of gotten very kind of soft and uh, we've wandered away from God and and we're not as enamored of his glory. And so we're, we've given ourselves over to modern sentimentalism. Uh, I often hear that kind of objection being raised to annihilationism. And I would just say, um, in fact, there has been a trajectory in the last several centuries, but certainly in the last couple hundred years, of increased sensitivity toward the suffering of other, of other creatures. So here's an example. If in the 17th century, if you went to an Anglican picnic in England, one of the common things that they would do was called bear baiting, where they would tie up uh, like a little black, cute black bear on a post, and then they would stick dogs on it, and the dogs would rip the black bear apart. as And the black bear is really incapacitated and couldn't do anything to defend itself. And families would watch this, right? They thought this was good fun to watch a bear getting torn limb from limb. I mean, people would, would gather together and they would watch public hangings. <clears throat> they would watch and bring their entire family. In the early 20th century, in fact, in the Southern United States, it was tragically common to have communities gather together to watch lynchings and they would actually sell commemorative postcards of a lynching. Uh, as I was there, wish you were here. Now today we look upon all of that, I, I think rightly as grotesque behavior, as people failing to appreciate through empathy and compassion and sympathy, the suffering of other people and other creatures. And that's not modern sentimentalism. I think that that's just a, a moral development in people in the same way that since World War II, it has been illegal in international law to target civilians in war. Uh, since World War II, we've defined the crime of genocide as a specific crime against humanity, as well as ethnic cleansing. For centuries, these were practiced with impunity in wartime. Uh, today, we look upon them as crimes against humanity. I think those are all improvements. And I think that we have the same improvement here when it comes to our moral thinking about hell, that people realize that the standard views of retributive justice, of inflicting, you know, so just twice as bad something on a person that they've inflicted on another people. That That's just a wrong way to think, that it has a brutalizing and dehumanizing impact on human civilizations that interact with other human beings that way. And so it seems to me deeply incongruous that we would have that kind of perspective. And yet when it comes to our view of hell, it's still frankly, in many respects, appears to be rather medieval. Yeah, that's some interesting points. I always, I think you bring up a good point because when I first uh, heard of annihilationism probably a few years ago, and before I really ever looked into it, I thought it was some sort of like uh, slim minority position in which people were just trying to get away from the eternal hell without really any support, which I think when I look at the biblical text and talking to people like yourself, that's obviously not the case. There's obviously a very uh, strong case to be made. I have one question here that um, came to my mind as we were going before we get into some of these objections to your view. And so th there's the classic question of what about people who never heard of the gospel? Um, I'm curious because I think in evangelical more probably more on like a latent flowers side of things they typically say people um were saved by putting their trust in god uh there what there is a way to salvation even if you didn't know christ um if you never heard the gospel um what's your view on that in light of annihilationism okay uh give me literally five seconds i gotta put the dog on the floor i have an aged dog that wants to get off the couch and he's whining <laughs> give me five seconds literally yeah, you're all good. that question you are all good <laughs> oh. 
And we are here in a moment. There we are. All right. <laughs> okay. So that question is, is the relationship between exclusivism and inclusivism. So uh, exclusivism is the idea that in order to be saved by Christ, one has to have some sort of cognitive awareness of Christ and uh, some accepted some kind of propositional content. So people often go to Romans 10, 9, for example, uh, that Paul says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, conf you know, confess with your mouth and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, but what I would suggest is that what Paul is talking about there is he's not setting up necessary conditions of salvation, but if anything, sufficient conditions, that, that that's certainly enough to be saved. But I actually think that uh, we're overreading the passage to say that that's required. So the inclusivist says that cognitive awareness of Christ is not always necessary. You're not necessary to be saved by Christ, that God's redeeming work in Christ can meet people in various different ways and at various different cognitive levels and experiences. And in fact, I think most Christians are inclusivists about at least some groups. So for example, most Christians believe that a infant who dies in infancy or a toddler who dies as a toddler, two or three year old, that they are saved, right? That they, even though they haven't had a cognitive awareness and a confession of faith that they are saved. Well, uh, same thing than severely mentally handicapped people. Yeah, okay, well, they're saved. They didn't have an opportunity to make a cognitive confession. But then you also have to say, well, then at what point are you now required to make a cognitive confession of Jesus in order to be saved by him? People often will say, well, an age of accountability. Okay, but where's the age of accountability? Scripture doesn't say anything about that. There's, I mean, people have inferences that they try to reason to it from passages such as David talking about being reunited with his child uh, that died in childbirth. But that's you're not, that's not actually telling you about a, an age of accountability. So that's all sort of guesswork, right? In fact, uh, some of the things we know is that in societies today, people recognize that the punishment inflicted upon children should be different than adults because children lack the cognitive development and the in inhibition control and the ability to anticipate consequences from a lack of cognitive development and from hormonal development. And as a result, we don't hold children to the same standards as adults. So if there is an age of accountability, I'm not sure where it is, but I suspect it's a lot higher than you know four or five years old. What this means is that I've, I've got a certain openness to say, well, where does God's grace go and, and who actually reaches him? What C.S. Lewis did, and quite famously at the end of the book, uh, The Last Battle, is he talks about this character in the battle, Emmeth, who was worshiping a false god named Tash, but nonetheless dis discovers that he was worshiping Tash in a way that was naive and mistaken, but nonetheless was well-intentioned. And that Aslan received the worship given to Tash as if it were given to himself, to Aslan. And because of that, although Emmeth never knew it, he was in fact in relationship with Aslan, though he did not know it. Now, it's interesting that Lewis suggests that possibility. The Catholic Church has officially embraced that kind of theology since Vatican II. And as an evangelical Protestant, I think it's certainly possible that, that God's grace can meet people in all sorts of ways. So I would be cautiously optimistic when it comes to the degree to which God's grace can meet people who have not heard of Christ or had a verbal confessional experience of him. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so now we'll transition here, kind of look at some 
passages and some objections that someone with an eternal conscious torment or torture view of hell uh, might bring up um, to support their view and kind of just hear your response to those passages. Yep. So we'll start off with the first one as I'm reading over here, uh, Matthew 25, 45 through 46, probably the most common passage you'd hear for an eternal view of hell. And it basically, uh, this passage talks about compared eternal punishment with eternal life uh, in a sense. So how do you look at that passage as an annihilationist? Yeah, I think uh, certainly one of the, the first people to really talk about that passage as one supportive of eternal conscious torment was St. Augustine, who argued that you've got a parallel here, that if eternal life goes on forever, the punishment goes on forever as well. So that the passage really requires a parity in terms of the ongoing existence of both of them. I think he's mistaken in that. So uh, response was given by John Stott. Um, John Stott came out as a annihilationist in a well-known book in 1988 called Evangelical Essentials. And in that book, Stott says, what we have to keep in mind is that what Jesus is talking about there, that there is as much contrast uh, present as there is comparison. In other words, yes, they are both final states uh, that go on forever, but there's also a maximal contrast in them. So that while uh, eternal life is a life that can go on forever in active existence, eternal punishment can be a destruction that goes on forever in ongoing effects. So in other words, the punishment is eternal because you never come back again. You've ceased to exist. It doesn't require, however, that ongoing conscious existence continue in parallel to the ongoing conscious life. There's actually a striking contrast as much as there is a comparison intended in the passage. Wow, that's really good. Uh, another passage here, I'll read it, Luke 16, 23. And it says, uh, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted his eyes and Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So I basically, I think in this passage, the, from an uh, eternal sense, someone who holds an eternal conscious view, there's this rich man who is currently in torment. He hasn't been annihilated in a sense. So how do you respond to that passage? Yes. So several things about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. First thing I would say is that when we read parables, we have to keep in mind what the main point or message of the parable is. So in this case, the main point or message of the parable is, I would suggest that it's an inversion of of the world's way of thinking about value and significance. So in our world, rich men have names and the poor men are forgotten outside the gate. Uh, and of course, that's what happens at the beginning of the parable. But in God's inversion of priorities in his kingdom, in fact, the poor man is given the name Lazarus and the rich man is never given a name. We never know who he is. But we also know that God totally redresses the scales of injustice in his eternal kingdom. And that's, from my mind, the first thing we want to get from that parable is that the main message is it's about how we treat the poor, how we treat the marginalized, and, and we can't miss that. Now, having said that, it is fair to say that the parable is nonetheless told against the backdrop of particular theological views so Jesus is working with those theological views and articulating his position in light of them. And so we can extract something about his theology of the afterlife or his eschatology, as we call it, from the parable. But the thing to keep in mind here is that this parable isn't actually talking about hell. 
what it is talking about is what we call the intermediate state. So theologians, uh, the basic picture goes like this. We talk about uh, when you die, there's this period between death and the general resurrection that I mentioned earlier. And that period is the intermediate state. That's the point at which you go to, as you read there, Hades or Sheol in the Hebrew, or in some older translations, it's translated but incorrectly as hell, that Lazarus went to hell. Uh, so in fact, yes, he went to Hades, which was the place of the dead. That's where you go in the intermediate state. So note that in that parable, Lazarus's brothers are still walking around, right? They're still alive. So that's contemporaneous with Jesus. But hell doesn't begin until after the general resurrection, right? So uh, there's the final general resurrection and then the final states of heaven and hell. So, so the rich man can't, by definition, be in hell because he's still in the intermediate state while his brothers are walking around. So um, the, the message there, I would say, is it's simply not relevant to the final state. It's just not addressing it at all. What it is addressing within the context of the point Jesus wants to make about how you treat the poor is that uh, this man is suffering in some conscious awareness, but he's in Sheol or Hades rather than hell. A uh, little side question here as listening to your spot, and this came to my mind. So for believers, where do they go uh, for the intermediate state? Would you say it's this Sheol or is it a different place? Uh, it's kind of just, I think I missed a part of what you said there. So just yeah. to clear. So uh, if, you, if, you, if we back up, to, because one thing we want to keep in mind when we're reading scripture is there's this key idea of progressive revelation. In other words, over time, there's a fuller understanding of God and our relationship to God and so on. So if you read through the Old Testament, uh, they had a relatively undeveloped understanding of the afterlife or an undeveloped eschatology. What they believed is that when, when people die, they, they go to the realm of Sheol, which is just the place of the dead or the place of rest. And it's a pretty gray area. You sort of get a picture of uh, the, the parable in 1 Samuel 28 of um, the witch of Endor calling Samuel back from Sheol. And he comes back as this ghostly figure saying, why have you disturbed me? And so that's kind of the picture of Sheol. There wasn't a clear distinction then of, of two the different groups going to different places. Where you really first seem to get that as a clearer message is in perhaps Daniel 12, 2, which talks about a general resurrection, some to life and some to judgment. And so that's now something beyond Sheol, right? So after Sheol, there's this general resurrection to look forward to. And so then you find what we call the Christian understanding of the afterlife beginning to take shape in around the period that Daniel was written. So in terms of where do, where do Christians go uh, or people who are in, in Christ? Well, um, so the parable of Lazarus and the rich man just gives us a picture of kind of a word picture of Abraham's bosom, Abraham's chest. Now, what that is just a symbol for the fact that he goes to a place of rest, a place of comfort, a place of peace. And that stands in contrast with this other man who goes to a place of torment. Now, Christians do disagree over the nature of the intermediate state or the interim state, whether or to what degree there will be conscious awareness and that kind of thing. But I would simply say to the degree that there is conscious awareness, that uh, there is this clear contrast between these two distinct states of those who are outside Christ and those who are in Christ. One more verse maybe we could mention is uh, the, uh, the, sorry, the thief on the cross. Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
So that would, at the face of it, seem to be talking about this intermediate state. So whatever the intermediate state is, it is a state of paradisical existence. It's peaceful. It's a place of shalom or wellness. But we also have to keep this in mind, that it's still not a place where we have the general resurrection of the body yet. So it will not be perfect. Right? It, it will we'll be waiting the general resurrection, but it'll still be a place where we no longer suffer and where we are at peace. Good. Uh, we'll go through one more passage here as I'm pulling it up at this moment. Uh, in uh, with passages that would kind of people use to propose eternal conscious torment. Uh, Revelations fourteen eleven. It says, "And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark of its name." So obviously the passage is talking about the mark. I think. From an eternal conscious torment perspective, uh, the idea that torment goes up forever and ever, they have no rest, things like that. So how do you look at that passage, um, Ren? Yeah. So let me say a couple things here generally before I then come to the passage itself. First thing, which maybe has been implied by what I've said so far, but maybe I haven't made it explicit, so it might be helpful to do so now. And that is the idea of a control text. So when we come to Scripture we often will find that different views seemingly are supported by different biblical passages. That's why you end up with Calvinists and Arminians, right? Because they have, they say, the Calvinist says, well, this passage seems to support my view. And the Arminian says, this passage seems to support my view. It's the same thing here with eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism. What ends up happening then is a person can say, well, I don't know what to believe because there seem to be two different views represented here. So I'll just be an agnostic about it. But if you end up saying, well, no, I want to figure this out, what you probably end up doing then is choosing one set of texts as what we call control texts. And that's what I'm doing. So first thing I'd want to say is I've already made a case somewhat briefly, but I've made a case for the witness of annihilationism within Scripture. And then what I do is, well, then when I come to passages that appear not to support annihilationism, they appear to be part of the eternal conscious torment view, I read them in light of my annihilationist passages as the control texts, which means they provide the hermeneutical framework or the interpretive framework for understanding these other passages. So that's what I'm doing here. So that's the first thing I'd want to say is I'm coming to these passages from the framework of an annihilationist perspective. Second thing I'd want to say is another important hermeneutical principle or interpretive principle is that you interpret that which is less clear in light of that which is more clear. And I think there are several passages I've already referenced talking about the destruction of the wicked, that they cease to exist, they're no longer there, that hell will destroy you and so on, that Jesus warns us. And we can bring that now as the interpretive key so that when we come to a passage that seems to be uh, to suggest eternal conscious torment, but it may be less clear than we can interpret it in light of these other passages. Now, why would I say less clear in this case? I would say as a general caution that when you're dealing with the book of Revelation, you're dealing with a book that is laden with symbolism of all kinds. And so we have to be careful about reading the symbolism too literally in a fashion. So for example, in this case, we have the reference of the smoke of the torment rising forever and ever. And my one caution about that would be that we have similar references to, like in Genesis 19, talks about the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah rising up. So I think this is, first of all, it's a clear allusion back to that. And so in that respect, it simply becomes a manifestation or symbol of God's judgment being visited. 
Now, as well, in I'm going to actually pull it up here. In uh, Isaiah 34:10, Isaiah talks about the judgment. God's talking about the judgment that will be given to Edom, and he says it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So there you have the reference to smoke rising forever in the judgment visited upon Edom. But clearly that didn't literally happen, right? There's not smoke rising in the Middle East now where Edom once was. Uh, that's been rising for 2,700 years or something. Uh, so it's clearly what we would call hyperbole. In other words, exaggeration for effect. And I think that when we have passages like that, one of the things that the revelator is doing in this apocalypse book is he's appealing back to all these Old Testament references or allusions. So it's a reference back to the judgment that was visited in Genesis 19 upon Sodom or in Isaiah 34 upon Edom and the smoke rising forever and ever. You get the same phrase here, the smoke rising forever and ever. So I think we have to be careful about reading it literally when it could very well simply be appealing back to this precedent in uh, the judgment of the Old Testament. Last thing I'll say about it is that we could also make this point, is to say that the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. That does not imply or require that the torment continues forever. In other words, uh, the smoke or the torment is temporal and it's limited, and then it re results in the cessation of existence, but the impact of it just goes on and on and on forever and ever. So it's kind of like this, you know, the Big Bang. Uh, so assuming there was a Big Bang that started off the universe, even now, physicists, uh, when they point out their radio telescopes, they can pick up the echo of the Big Bang throughout the universe even right now. And I think that that's something like this kind of image, that there was this explosive event of judgment, and now the echo of the smoke rising forever and ever from that original tormented moment that destroyed them, that continues forever and ever. It doesn't require that the actual suffering continues forever and ever. Okay, I have one more objection here from a more philosophical perspective rather than uh, a biblical text. And this is something that was actually brought up. I was hosting a debate on annihilationism a few days ago, and the person who believed in eternal conscious torment brought this up. And it's an interesting objection, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And Basically, the objection uh, appeals in a sense to a divine justice. It would say that, for example, someone like a Pol Pot, who's responsible for the deaths of millions upon millions of people um, in his country, that it's unfair for him to just be annihilated and that's it. Like, that's not a fair punishment for his actions. Like, he deserves, I don't know, um, something more than that, in a sense. So if you get what I'm saying here, how would you respond to that kind of objection? Yes. Well, so here's the one, well, I'll say, well, first thing that troubles me about the objection, it's, it's trying to justify eternal conscious torment by appealing to certain people that we think are deserving of it. So, well, Pol Pot, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, or uh, Osama bin Laden, or some, some other equally terrible person, those are the people that really deserve eternal conscious torment. Yeah, but what about my neighbor that uh, mows my lawn when I'm out of town and he isn't a Christian? Does he deserve eternal conscious torment? I mean, suddenly, on the one hand, the, the, the objections to it become a little more striking because we don't have that unspeakably evil person. But on the other hand, um, see, it troubles me is, is that the objector there is sort of suggesting that there are certain people that really deserve it and other people maybe that don't. 
Um, well, no, I mean, if you accept eternal conscious torment, then again, it isn't just Pol Pot who's getting it, right? It's my neighbor who mows my lawn when I'm out of town. So then I would also ask this. Um, does, does torturing a person satisfy justice or does it satisfy vengeance? There was, um, there was an interesting documentary that came out about 10, 12 years ago called At the Death House Door, which is a documentary that looks at capital punishment at the Wall Prison in Texas. And it focuses upon a chaplain who worked for 40 years or so at, on the Wall Prison on death row. And his job was to keep the people that are going to be uh, su uh, subjected to capital punishment, kind of keep them uh, relatively stable emotionally until they can finally be executed. And he comes to reject capital punishment and think of it as just this retributive punishment that's just brutalizing. And so then there's this, this one lady who's standing outside uh, the day when, when there's an execution and it was actually the guy who killed her father who was executed, and he was, and she was interviewed about it. And so the interviewer asked her, "Well, so what do you think about the execution of that guy?" And then she says, uh, "My dad's dead. That guy's dead. That's just two dead people." And what she was saying there is, is um, the desire to inflict suffering upon other people. It may satisfy some some primitive impulse within us, but it doesn't actually redress the problems in the world. Well, Jesus's atoning death redresses the problems in the world. Uh, I don't know that inflicting torture upon people redresses those problems. So I, I kind of am the same mind as that woman. Now you could say this, you could say, well, aren't you in the same position as an annihilationist? And what I would like to say is that in my view, annihilationism is ultimately about God withdrawing life-sustaining existence from people who don't want to have anything to do with God or with the very existence that he grants them. And so in essence, that is like a, the most merciful sort of thing that you could do is you will no longer force those people to endure the existence that they do not want. So would you... Yeah. Uh, so would you... Uh, I Reading The Great Divorce, obviously, C.S. Lewis makes the point that uh, he believes that God will only, um, the only people in hell are people who wouldn't want to be in heaven, in a sense. So would you agree to something similar to that? Yeah. I mean, well, certainly people, if, if people don't want to be in, I mean, if, if they say, if they if they choose hell, they're, they're choosing that they don't want to be in heaven. But of course, that doesn't mean that hell is going to be a pleasurable place for them because uh, they are people that are willing their own self-destructive cycles. Um, it's it's like the addict that continues to will to, to put the needle in his arm, not because it gives him any joy, right? Hell doesn't give anybody any joy, but it just uh, continues to magnify his suffering. But it nonetheless is he's willing not to be a part of this bigger story that he could be a part of, which is redemption in heaven. And it's a tragedy. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that, that the most merciful thing God can do is not extend existence to those people anymore. One more thing, maybe I just want to add about eternal conscious torment that I didn't mention earlier. And that it's, it seems to me that to will the, your own self-imposed suffering forever to choose, to will, to desire not to be in relationship to the one source of all love and goodness and mercy and grace is the ultimate irrational decision. And it seems to me that when people are engaging in fundamentally irrational ways, what you don't do is then punish them for it 
or in, inflict further suffering upon them or allow them to torture themselves, but you withdraw life from them, right? You don't allow them to continue to inflict that own misery upon themselves. So uh, if you agree that choosing hell isn't an irrational choice, it makes no sense at all, then it seems to me that, that God's mercy would be the kind of mercy that would result in their destruction and not in continuing to allow them to suffer eternally. That's good. Uh, one more question here, uh, simpler question, and then we're going to transition to some q and I saw a bunch of questions as we got going, so you can ask your questions. Is But before we get to the Q&A, one last question here. For someone who's looking into annihilationism, what are some of the resources that you recommend them to read or watch or anything like that? Oh, well, so I, I mentioned uh, the book, The Fire That Consumes. Uh, that's a, a still a good book. It pays a rereading, even though it's close to 40 years old now. But there's a newer edition of it that's come out. Zondervan has a great book uh, on four views on hell. Now, this is their second version. They had one that came out in the early 90s, and this is a new edition with new essays. So it includes annihilationism, universalism, uh, eternal conscious torment, and I forget the fourth one. Uh, but that's a very good book. I would recommend that as a good segue into the discussion. And um, Chris Date's stuff, Rethinking Hell, I think is is an excellent resource online. So they've got a ton of videos and so on. And they're, I mean, they're talking about annihilation. They're defending annihilationism every week or, or very regularly. So check out their stuff. Glenn Peoples has written on it, Greg Boyd. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff on annihilationism for sure. Mm. Awesome. Uh, we'll transition to a Q and A. Uh, before we get dive into this, I want to make sure we're good on timing. Are you, you said? Are you still good to go for about ninety minutes? If that's how long, how many questions we have? Yeah, I mean, we'll see how the our Wi-Fi goes, but for sure. <laughs> well, I think it's been good since um, we've you moved over to that room. So excellent. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. First question here comes from. Frank Christian, how's it going, Frank? He says, will fallen angels get tormented? He references Matthew 8, 29, which is, and behold, they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Yeah, well, so an even uh, maybe a, a more direct passage would be in Revelation 20 uh, from verses 10 and following. So that that talks about the lake. That's where you have the lake of fire and then the beast and the false prophet and the devil being thrown into the lake of fire, and they're, they're again, they're tormented forever. Uh, so that certainly does suggest that that they do suffer forever uh, in hell. So that's that's would be one way to, to read that. And the way an annihilationist would read that again, however, would be that uh, that God, the same logic that leads to annihilationism and the same hermeneutic that leads to annihilationism in the area of human beings and human rebels would also lead to to a response to rebellion and suffering in other creatures, such as angelic creatures that are fallen. So I would take a destruction view that they would cease to exist. doesn't mean that, that the process of destruction that follows annihilationism is instantaneous. I don't know uh, how long it would be. So it's possible that the destruction that is inflicted upon uh, human beings or demonic creatures uh, could be of a certain duration before they cease to exist. That's possible. But it seems that it would ultimately in both cases result in their cessation of existence. 
Awesome. Uh, another question here from Frank Christ Frank Christian. He says, "Will people be tormented?" Revelation nine five. Into them, it was given that they should not that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented. Uh, be be tormented five months. Yeah. So that's uh, talking about God's punishment on earth and these apocalyptic images prior to the, the final judgment and the general resurrection. So this is all prior to that. There certainly is examples where people are tormented and they're undergoing suffering and so on. So you certainly have that uh, occurring, but that's all penultimate or that's prior to the final general resurrection and then hell. Sweet. Uh, we're going through this. Another one from Frank Christian, and then we will get to some other people. Uh, he says, will Satan be asleep for a thousand years when he is bound according to Revelation 20? <clears throat> Excuse me. So Revelation 20, this is a uh, uh, reference to what we call the millennium. And uh, there are really four major views of the millennium. So my view of the millennial period is what's called millennialism. It's a probably, I'd say, the most widely held view in the history of the church. It's certainly from about the fourth century down to today. It's been very widely held. And amillennialism says that the, the millennium is that that, that 1,000 years there in Revelation 20 is a symbolic reference for the fullness of time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So that when it refers there to Satan being thrown into the pit for 1,000 years, what that's referring to really is the effect of, of Christ's work on the cross, defeating the devil, binding up the strong man, as it were, uh, so that um, his kingdom can go come out now. Uh, you know, as it says, the kingdom has come among you uh, with his coming. And, and so now we have that new millennial period and it will only culminate when he returns again. Now, there are other Christians such as premillennialists and amillennialists. So the, the premillennialist believes that that this millennial period is in the future and that uh, it'll Satan will be bound quite in a more literal way than I just described perhaps at the beginning of that period and then there will be a period of bucolic peace and joy and wonderment on the earth for about a thousand years before Christ then comes again and establishes his kingdom in its fullness. Uh, and then there's also a post-millennial view. So it really depends on how you interpret the millennium. Awesome. Uh, next question comes from Darth Calculus. He says, if they were asleep, then how should we understand the interaction between Lazarus and the wise men in their intermediate state? So I guess it's going back to when you talked earlier about uh, that stuff. Uh, asleep meaning, like, is he referring to the idea that uh, that when that the, the Bible uses the euphemism of sleep for death? Is that the idea? I think it's. Uh, he, I think he's referring to the idea that, um, like a soul sleep, like in the inter, like after our death, um, we kind of go to sleep until final judgment. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, most, I mean, most Christians have not held to the soul sleep view. That was a view that was popular among Anabaptists, and that's been popular among some other groups. Uh, but the soul sleep view is the view that says when you die. Uh, you cease to have any cognitive awareness uh, from the point of death to the point where you are resurrected again. And so in that sense, when they find references to sleep in the Bible, they interpret those as referring in some sense to the phenomenology of death, that death is like being in a dreamless sleep. Uh, so 
when you have the reference to Lazarus, uh, sorry, to the to the the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, and Jesus, and Jesus says, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Another way that people have interpreted that is to say, "Well, Jesus was just giving comfort words." That, uh, but really, what was going on is, if soul sleep is the case, then when the man on the cross dies, the thief on the cross, he will just cease to have any conscious awareness. But the moment he awakes at the general resurrection, he will be with Jesus in paradise. And since it will seem like it's instantaneous, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there are people that take views like that. Uh, I don't take that view. It seems to, to me that there is conscious awareness after death. I mentioned the example of uh, the witch of Endor earlier. So that's an example where Samuel is called back from the dead. And he appears to have conscious awareness of the world around him. He says, you know, why have you called me? And then Saul, speaking through the witch, communicates with Samuel. So it seems like Samuel can have conscious awareness after death. Um, some of the other things that you want to keep in mind here is that the belief in ghosts was a belief that was held both by Greeks and by Jews. And one of the reasons you can know that it was part of the Jewish view is that a couple examples, when, when the Jews saw Jesus walking on the water, initially they thought they had seen a ghost. So I believe the word there is phantasma, which you know we get phantasm from. And then the other one was, um, I think when, when they first saw Jesus, he appeared among them, I think in, the, in Luke, after his death, and they thought that they had seen a ghost before they realized it was actually him raised again. So that shows that ancient Jews had a belief that you could interact even with the living world, uh, even though you were deceased, which is what a ghost is by definition. That's a human being that can interact with the living world. So it shows that that was part of their view, that they very much did not accept the soul sleep view. The soul sleep view is popular today, I think, in part because of uh, the, the intimate unity between the mind and the brain. So we understand very well now that if you impact the brain in particular ways, then it weakens, or sorry, you, it's reasonable to think, well, you can't have consciousness if you destroy the brain altogether. But uh, there's an interesting body of literature uh, about out-of-body experiences. And when I say literature, I'm not meaning like at the occult section of the bookstore. I'm talking about in the medical journal, The Lancet, or the Journal of the American Medical Association. They've actually published case studies from people like Pim Van Lommel, who has, uh, I believe Pim Van Lommel is, um, uh, he's some kind of medical doctor. I think he uh, studies the brain. Uh, but they've actually done documented case studies where people seem to show conscious awareness after death. Uh, and then have come back and had a knowledge, vertical knowledge that they could not have had otherwise. And I think we have to keep an open mind about those case studies and look at what they have to say to us because they not only support dualism, but they would be contrary to the soul sleep view. So uh, that's a little bit on soul sleep. Yeah, that's some really interesting stuff. Uh, next question comes from SJ Thomason. Uh, shout out to SJ. She's a really good apologetics YouTube channel if you do not know already. But she says, what do you make of the third heaven? I don't know what Paul is referring to in there. I haven't, I have confess, I haven't studied that, so I don't have an intelligent comment to, to give on that one. I'll have to give a pass to it. All right, fair enough. Um, here's a question from Skeptical Mantis, or more of a statement, but I think is a good question. He says, if annihilationism is true, then rejecting Christ is no big deal. Um, some people don't want an eternal afterlife. So how do you respond to a statement like that? Yeah, this is an interesting one because I do often encounter this. It's sort of like, um, 
Well, let, let, let me, first of all, let's clarify the distinction here and to be very clear on this distinction that annihilationism is not simply you cease to exist when you die if you're not a Christian and that's the end of it. What annihilationism is, is that there is a general resurrection to judgment. And then at the end of that judgment, which is however long, uh, and you, you may suffer through that process, you will then cease to exist. So I think skeptical mantis, it sounds like he's saying, hey, capital punishment isn't a big deal. Well, I think capital punishment is a huge deal, right? If, if I was undertaking something and someone said, hey, you could be executed for doing that, I'm going to take them seriously. Now, if you even add into that, not only will you be executed for doing that, but you will miss out on the most unimaginable, glorious, wonderful existence for eternity that you could possibly have. You've now just multiplied the stake several times over. So the idea that if it's not eternal conscious torment, if people don't suffer torture in body and mind forever, then why care? That just seems puzzling to me. I think that really what we should want as Christians and, and what should be an evangelistic impulse for us is for want people to know who God is, who Jesus is, want them to achieve the fullness of life, want them to find shalom and wellness in a restored new creation. And, and the idea that we wouldn't be motivated to even care about that unless the alternative was them being tortured forever just doesn't make sense to me. Those are some really good points. Uh, Another question here from the skeptical mythos. Uh He says, if eternal conscious tournament is true, would that cause you to be critical of God? But I can expand that question of if eternal conscious torment is true, how does that, would that change your view of God in any sense? If, okay, if, oh, here's where we, I think we have to be a little careful. So for example, Clark Pinnock, he's now deceased, but he was a well-known evangelical uh, defender of eternal conscious torment. And the way that he would talk about it, he would say, if eternal conscious torment is true, God's a monster, uh, and he oversees a celestial Auschwitz. And I, I think that we have to be careful about that kind of rhetoric. So if eternal conscious torment is true, what follows from that is that my reasoning is flawed, right? Somewhere along the line, I messed up. Because I uh, my operating assumption is that God is that being than which none greater can be conceived. You know, Anselm's definition that God is a morally perfect, maximally good being. So uh, if eternal conscious torment turns out to be the right view, then maybe I am guilty of modern sentimentalism, right? Maybe I've gone wrong somewhere. Uh, I think we have to have a healthy appreciation of our own fallibility. So when, when people say, well, then I would reject God, God's a monster, I think what they're in danger of doing is making their own theology into an idol. Uh, we have to be willing to recognize that we could be wrong. What I'll simply say, however, is that until someone gives good reasons for me to believe that I'm wrong, I'm going to continue to believe that this is the way it is and that I have understood God rightly. But I want to keep an open mind for people showing me that I could indeed be wrong. And if I were wrong and persuaded of such, I would change my views. Thank you. Uh, different kind of tangent here. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this question from Sydney Avery. She says, isn't sinning inherently irrational? Um, so I, I touched on this when, when I talked about the irrationality of, of choosing the suffering of hell for oneself forever. Um, I think that, that sinning in one sense is irrational. In another sense, it is a rational act. Um, so it's a rational act in the sense that 
you know, there's something that I want. And so I develop some rational justification for it. And the whole act of providing this rational justification for it, which we call a rationalization, is itself an internally rational act because I'm trying to reconcile the tension. And in that sense, it can be rational. But in the larger sense that you're acting in, in a way that subverts your ultimate well-being and in the fact that in some degree you know you're undermining your own self, your own well-being, in that sense, in the objective sense, it is an irrational act, I agree. So, um, so the interesting thing, there was this old song by Fleetwood Mac called Little Lies, where they go, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. And it's kind of this, this weird idea that who chooses to be lied to? But in fact, people choose to be lied to all the time. Not only that, they choose to deceive themselves. They choose to lie to themselves. We are very complex beings and we can choose to lie to ourselves and will our own finite immediate pleasures, even knowing that that will lead to our ultimate destruction. But we get to that point, we get to that point through slow rationalization. So again, just to summarize my meandering here, uh, yes, we we can. I think we can be internally rational to justify or rationalize our action, but in the bigger sense, yes, we're acting against our well-being, and that's irrational. All right. So this is uh, the last question, I believe. Here, uh, we'll close on this unless I see anything else pop up. But it's from Frank Christian again. Um, I guess it's more of a question that he says supports uh, an annihilationist perspective. Matthew seven thirteen, where it says, "Going through the narrow gate for the wide." For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are who go through it. So, do you, I'm guessing you view this as a passage that supports annihilationism, and just if so, how does it? Um, I wouldn't say that it's. I think that that passage underdetermines that conversation. So, what I mean by that is that I don't think it says anything directly about annihilationism or, uh, um, uh, sorry, eternal conscious torment. But what it does talk about is a seemingly the relative ratio of saved to lost, right? It seems to say, well, there will not be many who are saved and there will be many who are lost. And so based upon this and some other passages like it, many Christians have developed a sort of pessimistic eschatology in the sense that they're kind of uncertain that there will be many who are ever saved, that whether it is eternal conscious torment or annihilation, that most people will end up there. And I would caution against reading that conclusion out of this passage for a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is because I think really the main point Jesus is using here uh, that he wants to make is um, to be ready, to get your house in order, to beware of going with the flow and with you know what everyone else is doing. Um, you know, if you're, I'm sure your mom has said this to you. My mom said it to me. You know, you don't do something just because everyone else is doing it, right? Well, if so-and-so jumped off a bridge, would you do it? Uh, well, yeah. So that's irrational, right? Don't do that. And I think what the main thing Jesus is saying here is he's not giving us a glimpse, in my view, into the ratio of saved to lost eternally, but rather he's just using an evocative, provocative image to try to get us to appreciate the warning. Now, I would say that there are other passages that talk about great numbers being saved. So, for example, if you go to Revelation 7, and keeping in mind the symbolic nature of Revelation 7, but uh, uh, here John talks about the 12,000 from every tribe being saved. And I think that you have 12 times 12, you have the 144,000 
what that is, it's a symbol for the fullness. It's not a, I don't think it's a literal 144,000. I think it's a symbolic number is all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. And at, at verse nine, he then turns around and he says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they're all praising God. And I think that's a very different picture where you have a full number, a greater number than anyone could count. And there are many other passages that talk about that. So one thing we haven't talked about today is universalism, but there are passages that talk about seemingly all creatures being saved, like Colossians 1.20, things in heaven and things on earth being redeemed and reconciled through Jesus Christ. So I would just caution us about reading too much into a passage like Matthew 7.13 and thinking, well, we've got a good reason to be pessimistic and skeptical about the number that will be saved. I think we can be hopeful that as Revelation 7 says, there will be a greater number than anyone can count. Hmm. Well, I think that's going to be all the questions we have. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've learned so much just from this a uh, little over an hour. Do you have any like kind of like closing thoughts you want to say before we start to wrap things up here? Well, uh, one thing is I, I think this is an important question, but I don't think this is a gospel question. So uh, it's important, but it's not at the center of Christian proclamation. So uh, it's not it's not on the same level as the incarnation, as the atonement of the Trinity, as the second coming of Christ. And so Christians should be able to agree to disagree about how they understand the nature of posthumous judgment or this judgment after uh, death and eternity. And we should extend grace to one another and humility and camaraderie. And we should, I think, hopefully appreciate that we're, we can all row in the same direction, even if we disagree on this important topic. It's good thoughts. Uh, so if anyone wants to follow Dr. Rouser on Twitter, I got to say he is one of my favorite followers on Twitter. He will um, make sure, sorry, I got distracted there for a second, but he is just very, He's a very good follow. He speaks his mind. He's very intelligent. He doesn't just go with the flow. Um, he's. I just think he's a great follow on social media. If people want to follow your work, Dr. Rouser, how should they do it? So I, I'm at Randall Rouser on Twitter. My website is randallrouser.com. And uh, you know, again, got about 11 books, I think, out. So uh, look me up. Yeah, I encourage everybody who's listening, if you do not follow him and his work, check it out. Ask for Adhering Apologetics. All of our links are in the description. You can follow us at A Apologetics on Twitter, Adhering Apologetics on Facebook and Instagram. And I want to say thank you to all of our supporters uh, who support this ministry. Special shout out to Rox B, Mike DeVito, everyone on Patreon. Uh, if you don't support us on Patreon, uh, I'd appreciate it if you consider we're about $200 away from our fundraising goal, which would be big. But that's it for, our, for today. Thank you so much for Dr. Rouser. Really appreciated it. Thanks, Zach. Take care. Take care. God bless, everyone.